totally natural thing and it, it's like very, very healthy. Day and welcome. This is the Hunting Republic podcast. The podcast where we discuss all things hunting and outdoors. So if you love hunting, camping, fishing, hiking, bushwalking, full driving, or just being in the outdoors, then we reckon you've come to the right place. My name is Luke. I will be your host and I can't wait to have you along for the journey. So please enjoy this edition of the Hunting Republic podcast. G'day team and welcome to the fifth episode of the Hunting Connection podcast. I'd like to um, kick off today's episode uh, by saying how much of a thrill it was to be able to sit down and have a good yarn with a really good mate of mine but a mate of mine who i met a number of years ago now um and we'll go into the backstory in the episode but rog and i have been um good mates ever since we got dragged halfway around the world uh, by our receptive respective partners and um and we happen to have a fortuitous meeting um, in a little town in Switzerland where we both lived for several years. And um, when you're living halfway around the world and you're, uh, you know, away from family and close friends and stuff, it is really cool to be able to bump into a guy and strike up a friendship and definitely what what we Aussies would call a mateship, um, sharing passions um uh, that are the same and um it was really uh, a privilege to be able to sit down and have roger on the podcast but also over the period of time that um we were there to be able to actually uh catch up and talk and and uh and share in some good not only good memories but making some more uh, and our kids uh, got to meet each other too for the very first time. So um, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Hunting Republic podcast brought to you from Colorado in the United States. Uh, and as a quick aside, um, it goes a bit of a way to explaining the absence in the appearance of episodes in the last month or so since my family and I have been traveling for uh, 44 days now give or take and uh, a little bit hard to report good podcast when you're when you're traveling but this was a special podcast and I hope you really enjoy an insight into uh, Roger's hunting passion for hunting um, and um, the some of the similarities and differences with regards to the way things work, but also the exact similarities in the passions that we have for what it is that we do. Please enjoy this episode, this fifth episode 
of the Hunting Republic podcast. So, welcome to the podcast, Rog. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming around the, halfway around the world to uh, to get me on here. It's awesome. That's awesome. We'll just have a have a quick chat in Roger's basement in uh, in uh, Colorado, and um, short backstory, I suppose. I've known Roger for what since twenty ten, mm-hmm. mid twenty ten. We first met, and Roger and I were both what the term they used was trailing spouses, and. Um, we both ended up in a little town in Switzerland uh, called Zug, and um, <clears throat> both our teacher—sorry, uh, our wives—worked at the same school, and um, and we were the trailing spouses, and um, we got together. I can't remember where we met. Was it at Pickwick's that night, the first night? One of those nights, and we were both doing photography. Yeah, we got as, talking just and just as, as, as a passion of, yeah. of, of photographing. Um, Right, the the Alps and and, and Switzerland, and it's such a, a great great vista. And then we um, we took school photos, didn't we? We did, <laughs> we did. Two years we did a lot two of little years. odd tasks yeah. to keep us busy and school photos. And and um, when they had made me, I went up and did relief teaching at the school. Right. When when the principal conned me into it, Amy guilted me into it. But yeah, bumped into this this crazy bloke with this American accent from Colorado, and uh, one of the places I've always wanted to visit. And uh, he tells me he's into photography and he's a bow hunter. And I was like, "What the hell?" Thirteen years later, <laughs> we make it happen in the states. Here I am, and, and one week after rifle season. Exactly, so. one week after uh, Rogers spent a few days in the mountain trying to get himself an elk, and um, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. It was not to be. Um... I, the, the, this year, in, so in Colorado we have, um, for rifle at least, there's four seasons, first, second, third, fourth. They're typically a week long, and they're separated by a week, so give the animals time to, to recalibrate in a sense. And um, I had a, a tag, a license for either sex, bull or cow, elk, uh, right in my backyard here. It's about a 70-kilometer stretch by... 30 or 40 kilometers, a kind of a block that's um, part of the Roaring Fork River watershed. Beautiful area. Stunning. I always love to, um, I like to think that I can hunt in my backyard. I can source, mm. source meat in the backyard. So while there aren't as many elk there, there's something about it that draws me to want to connect with an animal, connect with the woods mm. in my back door versus mm. driving two or three hours where there might be more elk. For sure. Yeah. Yep. So I got out for the first morning. Um, it was a. Fi- I was up. I went to the secret spot, supposedly secret spot, the honey hole, where there's um, <laughs> federal land surrounded by private land, and I had an access in there. Supposedly it was secret, but eight cars, eight rigs were at the parking lot at 5 a.m., and sunrise was about 7 a.m. So I was a little bit uh, disturbed, but I thought I found a, a way, and I and with my headlamp coming in at five in the pitch dark with the constellations and the stars out. It was a new moon. Beautiful. I, um, I stepped on about five or six cows and um, kind of spooked them off. So even before I got started, but it was nice to see and smell animals and mm. see those big eyes glowing in, in my headlamp. Absolutely. So I got out uh, the second day I was, I was ready to go back out. And my wife told me I was taking our son to a swim meet up in Aspen 
So um, I need to do a better job communicating to my wife um, what <laughs> five, a five-day season means um, and, and how uh, on the second day, if I'm going to a swim meet, it's really hard to 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 um, connect with an animal. Mm, mm, <laughs> to put meat in that freezer. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And and it's it's something else, you know, sitting here in in the middle of of what is elk country and driving around your hometown and and seeing elk antlers just up on someone's wall or fence or mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing for for an Aussie who um yeah we have our our you know six species of deer and stuff but there's a lot of there's a lot of people down under who who have elk at the top of their list and it's um it's a really cool place to be to to look in the hills and think you know they're up there somewhere you know just there um it is it's a surreal experience for me let alone to to get up and hunt them you know in the valley this valley is um it's prime elk territory we're at an elevation of um, 5700 feet right now so um 2,700 meters. High enough that I feel it. <laughs> High enough that we feel it. It goes up to about um, 2,700 meters up by Aspen. And we have um, 6,000 meter peaks all around. Mm. Um, and it's a it's beautiful area. It's elk country. And, and before the resorts, before a lot of the, the home developments and the subdivisions that are going in, even though the valley only has 50,000 residents in it, um, over three or four towns, um, there's a lot of development that has mm. bisected a lot of that um, elk migration. Yep. So they're in the mountains. They can't always cross the highways. We build these huge fences so we don't hit them on the roads. But you know, the, sometimes they want to go to that water source. They want to go to the river, and they can't. And so we've, we've done a good job of <laughs> basically kind of screwing up their habitat mm. a bit. But they're still in the mountains. And it's such big country that, um, you know, they they they're they're smart creatures. Absolutely. On 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 the first shot, they know exactly where the private land fence is. They know where to go. They know how to blend in. They know how to um, be loud and to be quiet. And they mm. know how to be seen and then just blend in. And so it's they provide a good hunt. Mm. Mm. It's not just going out there and gathering, as people used no, to say. No, absolutely hunt. not. You know, you got to earn it. You're not Absolutely. just going to be able to walk a mile, for, uh, a kilometer from your car and just happen into a field with a ton of elk. Actually, um, that brings to mind a meme that I posted today on the on the podcast website. And do I have to look it up? on? Oh, yes, I do. I've deleted it off my phone, but I'll just drop into Instagram and find it. And um, it was exactly that topic. And the meme says... Here we go. If you consider an unsuccessful hunt to be a waste of time, then the true meaning of the chase eludes you altogether. Totally. By Fred Bear. Who else? Yeah. Right. And that's exactly it. So how did you get into hunting? Have you, have you been hunting your whole life? Is no, it as a generational you know, thing for you? It or? wasn't. Um, I, I, you know, I had some uncles and, and, and some folks that did some hunting way back, but I was really never exposed to it. My first real hunt was with my college buddy, um, Mike up in Montana. I went to school in Missoula at the University of Montana. And Mike was from eastern Montana. Um, grew up in a lot of little towns. His mom was with one of the churches. And he knew that country like the back of his hand. And he wow. was, we were, you know, 20 years old. And um, 
taking his old beat down Toyota Tercel into these wild mountain ranges mm. and we went for deer first so and it's mule deer on the east side of Montana there's whitetail and mule deer in Montana mm -hmm. but where we were going was kind of out in the in the bluffs um, some timber a lot of open plains um, a lot of um, call them the breaks and a lot of interesting topography and where the mule deer really shine there's a lot of alfalfa a lot of big ranches a lot of sage and so it's prime mule deer habitat and he's like we're gonna go hunting um and it's gonna be great and i borrowed his 308 i believe um and we had two rifles we found deer really quick um we put down a nice four by buck four by four and we brought it into slaughter um and we had it was like the beginning of this beautiful thing. Mm, mm. And at the time, Mike had a longbow that was made by a, um, a local boyer somewhere in Montana. Um, and he's like, we should go down to this, the shooting range, uh, which is just a log cabin in the middle of nowhere where somebody had a few shooting lanes and $20 bills on the nice. wall and some, some targets. Mm -hmm. And a crusty old owner who has big beard and kind of a <laughs> leprechaun hat and is my new best friend because he thinks he's going to make a sale. And within a month, I bought this um, beautiful recurve, uh, Great Plains brand recurve, made somewhere in Kansas by a master, a master crafter, we'll say. Mm. And it was a little bit too heavy for me, but I loved it. It was the most beautiful bow. I loved the idea of shooting instinctively with mm -hmm. a recurve. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to fall in love with the notion. And then you go out there and you have to practice every morning. And you're <laughs> like, well, geez, this is going to take over my life in a sense. Not quite and I think as, that yeah. first summer I was shooting every day. Yep. Um, had a 3D target and, and, and loved it. And I, you know, it's, I, I never really um, had a, a good coach. Mm -hmm. So my range was never really there. But, you know, that first fall we went out hunting, shot a lot of grouse and rabbits and other things. Nice. Never shot a large animal with it. Um, it was just always out of my range or, you know, it's, it's hunting. There's yeah. always, there's always a reason why. You, you yeah. But I loved it. And uh, we did that for, gosh, two or three years. Mm -hmm. We would be all over western Montana, eastern Montana. There were a river trip. There were public lands where you could only access through the river, so we'd take my canoe, take our bows, half rack of beer, sleeping bags, <laughs> and we'd paddle five miles down this beautiful river, the Bitterroot River, and we would um, find some public lands that were, you know, that were accessible, and we'd hunt, and there's deer everywhere, and we'd always be like, well, I was going to push him this way. Why did you drive him this way? And whatever. And it, we, we never really connected with, with archery. Um, and we did with rifles. It was fun, but he was my he was my tour guide in a sense. Mm -hmm. It was at a time when there was enough internet access and magazines to figure out the whole world of hunting, um, from the organizations to the, like the NRA and some of these larger groups that um, you know you kind of found where your where your niche is. And I, I suspect it's the same as Australia. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. you know hunters at the end of the day are still taking home animals. Within that space, there's a lot of different ethics, a lot yep. of different yep. beliefs, a lot of different um, ah, strategies and uh, approaches to, uh, approaches to hunting. Mm. And um, and so I kind of found my niche. I found my 
my tribe in a sense of people that I connected with that maybe had similar thoughts on what fair chase is yep. on, and what are, what are the romantic ways that, that those romantic notions of, 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 of getting animals versus maybe those other mechanisms that are maybe a little bit less, a little more painless for those animals, right? Mm-hmm. So less suffering, mm-hmm. et cetera. But it's been a part of me since then for 30 years now. Mm. And I don't get out every season. Sometimes in March when we have to put in for our licenses for the following fall, I forget. Mm. And so I, I kind of go tagless and I have to compete with people over the counter for, for certain tags and licenses. Yep. Yep. But um, it's a beautiful thing. It's something I want to introduce to my son when he's ready. Uh, and I might take him out in a couple of weeks here for mm. deer. Mm. Um, I have a doe tag. And um, we'll see if he's ready. I, he won't pull the trigger. It's a rifle tag. Mm-hmm. But to have him out there, um, I joke with Rachel, I might have a vegetarian on Sunday morning. But, you know, at least <laughs> um, to me, he's at that age where um, if he's eating meat, um, to be able to understand what it takes to take a life. Absolutely. To have a communion, to yeah. have a, a, an exchange, a, a blessing, a, some kind of transaction that is... Um, holier than anything right Mm. and to be able to witness that and to have that knowledge and to have that experience and and you know we can only sometimes we think our kids might be ready (laughs) and sometimes maybe it's not and so maybe it won't work out but i'll let you know Mm. but for now um there's this idea that at least for the first morning for for um where we're going to be going, I would love for him to join me. Mm. He's fidgety, so how long is that going to last in the dark, right? But to, to have that experience, Absolutely. to have him look through some binoculars, to have him see sunrise, to have him looking at dark, shadowy shapes and have mm-hmm. those come to life, whether mm-hmm. they're bushes or deer, to see the world wake up. Absolutely. Um, the the wild world, too. So getting yeah. back to the, you know, the quote you had earlier, mm. I mean, it's always, whether it's hunting or fishing or climbing or hiking, it's, connect, it's, it's connecting it's with connecting. nature. And um, my, I, I, like most people, I'm sure the best days hunting, you never had any, you never, you never saw an animal or got mm-hmm. close to one, but it was being outside. Absolutely. Right? And the, the cool thing about what you're saying is, you know, having, having met um, your son and, and, um, and spend a few days with him now um, and uh, sort of gotten a bit of a, a gist as to what the way he thinks. I think the, the process of, the, of the, the hunt will be something that he'll click with. You know, he seems to be, be, be a young guy who does the, the processes yeah. and I think the introduction to those processes will, will probably really, I, I think he'll really um, tune into it well and he'll enjoy that side of it. I think so. I hope so. I mean, ultimately, it's um, as we think about our kids, and and maybe he's it's not fragile. It's it's more that he's a, he's a sensitive kid, mm. and you know, at some point, you're looking at an animal, you're looking at those those doe eyes, literally, mm-hmm. and they're not moving. Mm-hmm. And it's the start of something of, of the exchange mm. of that life of, for that nourishment. Absolutely. And for and, and an appreciation for that. And I want to take him through a prayer. I want to take him through that that moment that is that is um, that makes us human. That makes mm. us animals. Mm-hmm. And um, and and see how he'll do. 
um, and see if, if that is anything that is something that might resonate with him. Mm. Um, and if he doesn't ever want to do it again, um, but he orders a burger after <laughs> school with his friends, um, it's the same thing. He'll still understand. It's still it's still a mm. life, mm. a life for a life in a sense. So, and so you know, yeah. So I've I've quote ma- repeated the quote several times on on this podcast, I believe, um, but also on a few others I've been in the last couple of months. Um, that I was first pointed to by um, by a Spanish guy that I know, Pedro Ampuro, who oh, I was just looking at some of his stuff on on socials today, mm-hmm. um, but. It was, you know, a hunter is not without remorse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that remorse and that feeling, that exposure to um, either, doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's a grown adult or it's a, um, you know, a, a child, a child or a kid who's of, you know, age that, you know, his parents deem him mature enough to go and be exposed to that. It is that process that I think um, is what is the grounding part of the whole thing. You know, there's the the awe and the wonder, and as you said before, the um, the connection with the land and the changing of those shadows into reality as as light comes and all that sort of stuff. But the grounding is that that reality and that remorse, yep. and that is that connection with with the the human side of it or the humane side of it. I mean, some might write it off, um, and others it's a it could be a just a profound awakening. It's a responsibility. Mm. Um, you're taking a life, and it's uh, and um, at least for me, it's a, it's a serious, a, a serious um, event, a serious kind of choice that I'm making. Mm. And so I want to, I want to, kind of, as I guess as a dad, we get to to be the, the tour guide sometimes and yep. talk to them about perhaps what's important in life, what's sacred in life, and what is something that um, drives us. Yep. You know, and so. Great, I can, I can, I can choose to make that what it is, and uh, I'm excited to to share that with him. And if he's not ready this year, great. Maybe it's another year. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a dad who hunts, who has other means of putting meat on the table, I'm not going to starve like a lot of modern hunters. Mm-hmm. But it is about fair chase. It is about getting out there. And if mm-hmm. I can share that with him, I can't think of a stronger way to connect with a human being other than hunting mm. um, i have got i used to climb a lot in the mountains and your climbing partners are are um are have your life in their hands mm. really mm. and there's a there's a and you sometimes you go through you go through lightning you go through circumstances where you might be like hey it's me and you buddy you know <laughs> smoke them if you got them because we're yeah. we're going down exactly and Climbing partners to me were always um, some, you know, it wasn't just a run of the mill. Hey, I like you. Let's do this. Mm. But hunting partners, like that's one of the most, I think, um, partnerships, bonds um, Mm. that um, to me, like I don't bring just anybody hunting. 100%. Right? And those experiences that you have, that's why my friend Mike up there, we haven't Mm. seen each other in a while, but like can pick up the phone at any point and, 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 and we can be in lockstep in terms of just, I don't know. Absolutely. We have, we have Absolutely. shared experiences that, um, I will never give up. Mm, mm. I'll remember forever. So. Yep. 
the good, the bad, the crazy times, the fun times, the silly times, the like, what the hell were we thinking times, <laughs> right? Yeah, 100%. Um, 100%. And, and God bless them. So. Yeah. No, and it's, and I, I don't know, you know, we talked about um, the first episode that I did um, of this podcast with Barry and Dave. And, right. And, um, you know, if... if um, if anybody else who's listening has, has heard those episodes, the same thing with, with Baz, you know, like we've known the guy 30 years and introduced him to hunting as well, took him on his first hunt and drove 17 hours to get to the hunting property and, you know, within the first morning he had his first kill and, you know, that was that was something else. And it's that same connection I could, you know, an occasion do, pick up the phone and like, what the hell's going on? And nothing changes and it's the same. And, no. You know, and it's... But you have that... You have that, have that, that connection never, and... Yeah, that I distinct, it. you know, it's fantastic. So, um, like you talked about hunting the, the deer, what's the, what's the difference between the seasons with the, the deer and the elk? So in the States, um, you know, unlike where you are with, it's, it's kind of a flip, you know, it's all public lands that we get to hunt. Mm. You, you can hunt pr- um, private lands if you have permission, but that's a little bit harder in the West, especially with a lot of new, the new homeowners that come out and want to lock the gate and not allow any public access. Mm-hmm. But deer and elk, depends on the state, but a lot of um, deer and elk seasons overlap um, so that um, for first rifle, you can have a, an elk tag, a deer tag, doe or buck, um, cow or bull, and um, they're regulated. In, in Colorado, we only have mule deer in the mountains and their their populations are recovering, but uh, the state Department of Wildlife, um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they issue far more elk tags than deer tags. Really? They're just more elk than deer deer. Yeah, wow. You see see deer everywhere, but um, mule deer are one of those species, and I'm not a wildlife biologist. Mm. I don't play one on TV, but (laughs) what I heard is, you know, they thrive until they don't. And so they're, they're, they're herds, the herd's going to have somewhat precipitous declines fairly mm. quickly. And so um, even though we see deer on the side of the road, um, they can be, you know, in, in, in more domestic and suburban areas, um, there's still, the, the numbers aren't that high where they're just allowing, they offer a ton of deer tags. So mm. they're kind of harder to get. Um, okay. Every time I'm elk hunting, I see deer. Every time I'm deer hunting, I see elk. <laughs> um, that's the way it goes. Um, and I haven't put in for... How does that work? You don't hunt with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The cool thing about this area is um, we have a lot of wilderness areas, and there's one up by Aspen called the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness, and they have a high-season buck tag that they offer. It's a rifle tag in the middle of archery season, but it's way up there at 13,000 feet and 14,000 feet. And so wow. you're, you're on these ridges, you're, 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 you're busting your lungs, and it's a week-long um, buck tag for a muley buck um, while I think it's like September 4th. 7th to the 14th mm-hmm. so it's right i mean it's right smack in the middle of archery season mm. um our, so our archery season goes for the month of september we have muzzle loader in between and then um rifle season for elk and deer starts in mid-october yep and so um you know with the elk you get to hunt the rut um archery um nothing like it right to oh. to, 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 to um to i don't know what it's like down there for your species but you know to have that's what that's what got me 
it was was the archery it was just to get close to the animals yep. and it's funny after you do archery and you and you get your rifle tag you know there's a bullet at 100 yards you're like oh it's too far 100 meters it's too far out i gotta get closer and you're like wait a second wait a second i, I don't I, have I, to I zeroed in at 200 meters right? i don't have to that's right so that's right. but um it's uh you know for archery for me it was uh we called in a raghorn one morning a little um i don't know how big it was um but it was a bull he came running in. I was cow calling. My my partner Mike was bugling, and this thing was seven yards away from me. Wow! And he was young. He was full of it. He wanted to fight. He wanted to kick ass. And that was my first experience of mm-hmm. like, holy, holy shit! Wow! <laughs> now I get it. Now I get why people are just you know they can't even pull back because they're yep. just like they're shaking and they're so they're having the time of their lives. Absolutely. So. Um, you know, deer hunting is different. I'm a total non sequitur. I'm weaving it here. Doesn't but, um, it doesn't for, matter. For deer, <laughs> um, it's the same. It's the same seasons, um, and um, the state the state offers a lot of elk tags. And um, what's interesting about state wildlife agencies is that their most of their budget, at least in Colorado, comes from selling tags. For mm. Deer and elk. Yep. So they're state funded, but they get they don't get much money from the state. So their revenue source is selling tags. Colorado is pretty liberal mm-hmm. with um, the amount of tags they sell. Um, I.e., they sell a ton of tags, mm-hmm. and most of those go out of state. You know, if you're out of state, you're gonna pay six hundred, seven hundred dollars for an elk tag mm-hmm. for one week for a one week hunt, and there are plenty of people mm. lined up to do that. And look, just quickly, like you know, yeah. ba- based on some of the prices that you'll pay for. Yeah. I mean, this you know, comparison to guided hunts, um, mm-hmm. but you can still pay access um, fees down in Australia that, that don't get you any guiding. Right, six hundred bucks is nothing. Well, I'm for, sure for, for what we pay at home. Yeah, so that's your license, and then mm. of course, um, if you want to do it yourself, great. You can bring your side by side and your your beef jerky and your coolers and your jeeps and everything else. And it spent a lot like any like any hobby, right? Man, hunters have found a way to to get rid of their disposable income, <laughs> or the industry has found a good way to sell you their Kool Aid and, and, and sell you the, sell you the stuff that it's not going to make you a better hunter, but maybe it just makes the experience overall. It's great. Yeah. But yeah. they um so they sell a lot of tags. And um, that gives them the revenue then to have agents that and rangers that will come out and ensure that um, people are doing what they need to do. Yep. That are, they're legal. Um, but there's always this push and pull because um, I think the number one, you know, issue with 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 um, with elk and deer. Uh, mortality is still lead poisoning, right? I mean, it's still oh, at the end of the day, but 100%. yet I, you know, I work for the forest service. And so, um, I also know that, um, and that's the federal, um, agency that manages a lot of habitat. We don't manage the wildlife, but we manage the landscape mm. and the things that they, those, those deer eat. And so it's a fascinating, um, balance to have with these agencies that are in charge of preserving populations. Sometimes they'll get mad at us for, maybe like doing some logging and, and ruining some habitat. And then they also, on the other hand, issue a ton of tags that take out half the elk population, right? Mm, so mm. it's this push and pull and um, it's it's an interesting, um, I think, um, environment. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting conversation because there's a lot of pressure at 
home in Australia with regards to the species that we hunt. And as, as discussions we've had, you know, you know that anything that we can hunt is, is feral and introduced. Yeah. And, and there's a difference between a, a, an introduced species, a pest be, or a, and a declared pest, and um, what that means with regards to management and um, eradication or efforts towards that and responsibilities of landowners and that sort of stuff. And there's um, a lot of conversations being had at the moment and, um, you know, white papers being issued and all that sort of stuff with regards to deer because deer populations of the various species up and down the coast and all over the place are exploding. Right. We've had, you know, several years of extremely good conditions and, and all species are exploding, but deer seem to be um, much more visible, um, particularly in the, in the suburbs. And oh, yeah. you know the, the the areas where there's a high population, therefore more eyes get on them than say pigs, which um, you know it, it, arguably or not, some might agree or disagree. In, in my opinion, actually do far greater damage to our ecosystems um, than deer do, but they they don't get seen in the suburbs, so they're not as topical amongst the um, oh yeah. The, the, the greater population. Yeah. But those discussions around, um, you know, from a hunting perspective that, that deer are being, or, or, you know, people are pushing to class them as declared um, pests and, and therefore, you know, um, in, in certain places where there's um, uh, chopper shoots, chopper culls, where they just come in and, you know, wipe out whatever they can, or at least shoot them, you know, wipe them out, who knows, they don't actually yeah. stop to check. Yeah. And there's a lot of very heated debate and heated discussion from from those of us who think the species um, or, or, you know, whatever the feral is deserves better um, than some of the management practices. And then, you know, that whole notion of, you know, observing uh, a lot of the framework and the, the, the way that the um, tag systems work here and, okay. and the way that you, know, you guys have, have structured things to be such that, you know, you put a price on an animal's head and it becomes valuable. And then, you know, it becomes valuable to the landholder, you know, and in, in the state of Queensland where, where I live, you know, as you said before, we don't have public land hunting. We only have private land hunting. So therefore, if there's a price on the animal's head and it becomes worth something to the landowner, then, you know, they, they need to manage that herd. Mm -hmm. They don't want it to overrun their property. That's not in their interest. But at the same time, there can be a financial benefit for them to have those animals and therefore there's a sustainability in managing those animals uh, rather than just wiping them all out you know oh yeah and there's some private ranches here in the west too that charge a pretty good access fee um, and they really call the herd for those really big trophy bulls mm. you know that people really want because there's you know in america there's a, there's, a, there's the entire spectrum right of yep. of the horn hunters, the trophy hunters versus, um, you know, the meat hunters. I'm, I'm probably more in the latter uh, category. Um, I've got random sheds here and there around, you know, that the dogs chew on that the girls were just playing with at the weekends. Yeah. But uh, I'm not one to necessarily to go for the go for the horns. Mm -hmm. I like I like I like I like to eat my meat with a spoon, right? So <laughs> cows and cows and does are, are uh, <laughs> they sure do taste great. That's it. And and um like we I mean we've had the discussion and, and, and your wife has certainly mentioned that she definitely likes elk. Do you prefer elk to deer? I do. And why um, why was that? What's the difference? I, you know, I think it's just um it's it's um you know honestly it, it's more of the 
regardless of the species, it's more, in my view, of what they're eating. Yep. So if you're in eastern Montana and these things are and these mule deer are eating sage, it's going to be a little, a little gamier, mm-hmm. a little, a little um, more of that. Um, well, it's love hate. It's it's what you it's what you like, right? Mm. But elk is a little bit more mild, but it still has it's the perfect balance of of a red meat that's not too gamey, mm-hmm. but it it's uh, got just a perfect flavor profile. So I love it. Um, a lot of a lot of red blooded Americans do. It's it's not a bad thing. I I think I've had moose once. You know, yep. um, people say it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Deer um, it really depends what they're eating. Yep. You know, if they're eating acorns and if they're eating alfalfa, and um, eating you know poaching a lot of their diet from private private farms, that's going to taste a lot better than those that have been eating sage and some mm. of those more mm. wild grasses that they can find. And any any particular um, cut of the elk that you prefer. I mean, it, uh, it's hard not to like the tenderloin and the backstrap um, because there's so much of it. It's, mm. it's usually delicate. Um, the last cow I had was, was just... Actually, the last cow, two years ago, I was helping a buddy out who's also wearing Brackenware. It's amazing. He, we got a cow just 20 clicks away from here. Um, and I, we, we hauled it out, and I think I got one of the front legs and some back strap and some other things, random cuts that um, he shared with me. Mm-hmm. And um, even like, you know, the front leg, they're not sexy cuts, right? Off the, off the, rear, the rear leg, you get some larger cuts mm. that, are, um, that make some great steaks. But the stuff that we had off the front, the front shoulder was, was just beautiful, mm. beautiful meat. I, I'm still a th- still believer that the way you treat that animal from the time you pull the trigger, if you've been chasing it, if it's been running, um, how you cure it, how you hang it, how you take care of it, if you're dragging it through the woods and bruising it up. Absolutely. Um, and how you cut it and how you and how you store it, um, I still think does um, so much. It's a, one, it's respect for the animal, right? You mm. want to treat it well. But then... Um, it, it, it impacts the taste, hmm. and I like to cook. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a chef. <laughs> you might as well I, be. <laughs> I, 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 I've loved to cook for a long time, and the first time I, the first year we got in Montana, we brought it to a butcher, and they give you the menu, and you make some of it into sausage and mm-hmm. hamburger, and you get your steaks back, and you don't even know if it's love it. You don't even know if it's yours. Could be, could be, could be, yeah. could be. And the burger was thrown into a pile with everyone else's deer. Yep. And, um, I mean, I didn't know any better. Second deer brought back to our garage and we, but I butchered it myself and I was a biology major in college. Um, did a lot of dissections and loved the, the process of butchering to isolate muscles, to understand how strong a deer's back leg or an elk's back leg is by deconstructing that leg absolutely, and taking the eye around versus the bottom round and, and, and taking like these meat cuts that you've always heard of and applying them to actual muscle groups. Yep. And it was such a fascinating thing. And I made my own um, stock that time out of, um, I roasted those bones and I did a mirepoix and I, I did these amazing things. And I, and I, and so you I, just I, said a word I don't even know. And yeah. You reckon you're not a, a chef. It's a celery, onion, um, <laughs> carrot. Uh, it's a French concoction. I'm going to throw a French word out there too. Sound yeah. important. Yeah. And so it was um, the best stock I've ever made in my life. Wow. And I've made grouse stock and pheasant stock since. And 
still stands out as like the best stock I ever made. Mm. Um, and it was probably the most fun thing I could do. And since then, I've never, I've always butchered my own. I feel like it's, if you're going to shoot an animal, at least for me, um, you know, you take it, you take it full, full circle and you butcher it yourself and, um, you get to kind of, yeah, you don't just give it to somebody else to say, mm. Hey, deal with this for me. It's so, pop. and I've had the time and I love doing it and I make yeah. the time. So um, it's funny you, you talk about the, the, the interesting, you know, or the interesting, um, the fascination with the, the anatomy. I found that too. My, my first ever bow kill was just a rabbit out, uh, out in oh, yeah. Gundawindi, which is southwest of, of Queensland, very flat area. And um, the homestead we were staying at, these, these rabbits were just running. Was that kind of getting deserty at that point? Or no? Oh, not really. Not like Adelaide deserty. Okay. No, okay. no, not quite. Um, but it's it's rabbit brush. Sheep country, a lot of ra- yeah, a lot of rabbits there because it's right near the border, and New South Wales has heaps of them, and it's it's um, you know you'll you'll find a lot more there than you will further north because yeah. of the conditions and the climate and the heat and stuff like that. But so yeah, I, I whacked one and um and skinned it. Uh, I tanned the skin. I've still got it. Nice. Um, but the process of of skinning it and you know actually revealing the the anatomy underneath, and you could see all those muscles, and you actually look at this thing and you go, I can see why you are such quick little pricks across the ground. You know, you see where the ligaments attach and how the you muscles see the work. Oxygen, and, like the oh, pathway, it's so red. It's fascinating, it's yeah. So, um, yeah, the reddest meat. It's it's just just for pure speed, and, and you and it yeah. looks like a different beast because anytime you skin an animal. But rabbits, especially. I shot a a, ra- a great rabbit with my with my with my my recurve once, and it was a perfect shot, piercing scream. <laughs> um, but I got it out and you, I skinned it a certain way, kind of pulled it apart yep. in the middle. Yep. And uh, you look at this thing, and it looks like a greyhound underneath. Yeah, it does. Hundred <laughs> percent. It really does. Lean. Yeah. Fast running machine. And then you have um, well, you have jack rabbits over here too, I believe, which are yeah. big, aren't they? They are. Big? Yeah, so we have hares, yeah. European hares, and they're the same. They're much bigger than, than sort of the rabbit. And you skin one of them too, and you know, even more so because it's bigger. you know. And they, their gait is a bit different to a rabbit, but they're quick. They're really quick. They're quick, and when you skin a, a jackrabbit, it's an eerie, it's an eerie body, I found. Mm. And I, I've never like shot kangaroos or anything like that, but it, it had rabbit. When you skin it, it still looks like a rabbit. And when I skinned a jackrabbit once, and I made a, a hassan pfeffer out of it, um, but when I took it when I took it apart, there was something that was just something eerie about mm. it—the the, the muscular, uh, musculoskeletal system and everything yep. else. I was looking at it, I was like, well, and maybe it reminded me of like, you know, some some element of it being human or whatever. Mm. But it was like, whoa! <laughs> and that, you know, that's kind of why you do it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, 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 you're part biologist and part kind of, you know, curious kind of like, how is this, how is this thing put together? That's, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you look at the legs and you look at the length of the, you know, you wonder how they can jump so fast. One of the coolest things I ever did, I ever did was, um, I'd shot a, a dog, a feral dog, wild dog in Australia, a fox, also feral, and a feral cat. And, took their skulls and boiled them out and you know the teeth fall out when you boil them put them yeah. all back in that and I had on display at home I had the fox or the, you know the dog the fox and the and the cat side by side and it, and it was almost it was almost like and it's, it's not large, huh? it's not you know um what's I'm looking for um 
evolution, but you, you could almost see evolution from a dog to a cat there and the fox sort of halfway in between. And it's just fascinating. And I kind of since through different means have come to not have those skulls anymore, unfortunately, but it was always something that was just, it was a really cool thing to show people, yeah. you know, and, and, and just to be able to sit, you know, take the skull and actually turn it over and look at all the bit, different yeah. bits and pieces and then compare the next one to the next one. Yeah. It was really, really cool. Yeah. yeah, but talk about eerie screams on that, on that same, same trip. My, my father whacked a um, hair um, with the bow and, um, and it just screamed like a, like a baby. The yeah. noise that came out of it was like a screaming yeah. child. And I was, I, I hadn't, you know, it, it was a long time ago and I hadn't seen uh, or had um, it was shot a hair. piercing. Oh, piercing, but just like a screaming yeah. infant. Yeah. And I was like, what? <laughs> it, it, it was eerie. It was really eerie. And it was something like, oh, I never want to hear that again. <laughs> no, no. It was something, you know? it just, it's just, it like has, yeah. you know, it just, um, I get it. Was well, that, our rabbits actually whistle? They sound like a whistling kettle when they're injured, yeah. like dead set, just like a. And our, our, we say fox whistles, but the the noise that mimics an injured rabbit, and it's a little button whistle you put in your mouth and blow to to drag the foxes or cats or dogs in or whatever. But they dead set just sound like a whistling kettle, so that's a weird noise too. It's like an elk bugling too. It's like that yeah. big thing's making that noise. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that yeah. That, that pipe that that that, um... that that high note they've got. It's amazing. So, um, you mentioned you do a bit of rifle hunting. What okay. what sort of rifle do you have? I've got a thirty out six, and uh, I've got an old Ruger, and I just purchased last year Tika Tika, oh. whatever that brand is. Yep. Um, same caliber. Same caliber, and it's Beautiful. funny because they had a, a, you know I'm 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 not a luddite, but I'm definitely one that doesn't. I I look at guns as as tools. Yep. Um, to each their own. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of guys that show up at the range and spend a lot of money on ammo, and they just love to shoot. They love that, whatever, uh, any, any aspect of it. I, I go through three or four bullets a year. I go to the range to make sure I'm still sighted in. I'll use a couple bullets, and I'll use hopefully one on an, on an animal, yep. maybe two if I have two tags. Um, so I, one box of ammo is going to last me four or five years. <laughs> um, but when I went in there last year, uh, for this rifle, I was basically, my Ruger is, it's the heaviest thing on, on earth. Mm. And I'm usually trying to get into the back country, you know, four or five miles back there, just hiking. Um, and so I wanted something lighter weight and he sold me this gun. It was pretty cheap and it's not sexy by any means, but it's super utilitarian. It works. It was maybe a full kilo lighter than my current setup. Nice. Which adds up. Absolutely. When you're hunting in these And I brought it to the range, and it was like night and day. It was lighter. I thought it'd have more kick, and it was the most beautiful shooting thing. I didn't flinch. It was like this, and I was, and I was within, within, you know, a few centimeters for three or four rounds. And I was like, wow, I've, okay, I found my dream gun. This is amazing. Mm. But I, I was talking to him, and, you know, you if you want to read about 6.5 Creedmoors and everything else, mm -hmm. um, you know, I basically asked him the question. And maybe he was just trying to sell me a gun, too, because nobody wants a 30-06 anymore. But, you know, I'm like, am I, am, I, am I looking at this wrong? Most of the shots I take are within 100 yards, 150 yards. Mm-hmm. 
I can still shoot at the 300 yards if I want, right? But I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not that one shooting um, fox or, or wolf or coyotes from a distance, like that kind of thing. It's mm. not, I'm, I, I, that's not what I do. And he's like, you know, they've been making it for 100 years. You can buy ammo anywhere you want. It's still an absolutely. Gun. He's like, if you don't believe the marketing, yep. gun magazines need to sell guns. Uh, he's like, this is amazing. 30 out six is still incredibly relevant. Mm. And he's like, you know, the ballistics on that thing have been proven up and down. It's, yep. It's so I shoot a hundred green, 180 green bullet, um, copperhead. So there's less lead in the world. And, um, that's my, that's my story. Mm. I know, mm. um, I got a, I got three shotguns, a 12, a 16 gauge that I love and a mm. 20. Yep. Um, and bird hunting to me is still like, for whatever reason, what gets me going. But in fact, Mike used to, to give me, give me hell because we'd be out there elk hunting and I'd flush a couple of grouse and I'd start running. And he's like, God damn it, Roger, get back here. What are you doing? We're going for multiple meals. You're going for one dinner. I'm like, I can't help it. They're birds. So I, um, I, I love shotguns. Um, it's just a, I don't know what it is. Um, seeing them when you're younger, but there's something about um, going for upland birds mm. with, with shotguns. And so, what, what do you have down there for birds? Not a lot, believe it or not. Um, you can't hunt native birds right. to an extent. There's uh, a duck season further south. Um, and anything there's... introduced, though, for like like pheasant or anything like that? No. Oh, look, not, not that's on my radar. Okay. Um, you can hunt uh, in the Northern Territory, you can hunt magpie geese. In, oh, okay. in a particular season, yeah. Um, so we've got a lot of game birds yeah. here. There are three. There, you know, it's uh, grouse, rough grouse, blue grouse. Um, they're going to weigh a couple pounds each. Um, they're like big chickens, mm. um, and they flush. I saw a few um, grouse actually when I was up in Canada. Yes, a few weeks ago. Yeah, ptarmigan grouse. Yep. Um, we have sage grouse. We have pheasants, obviously, which are great game birds. Yep. Kind of need a dog to flush them out. But yep. um, there's something about um, it's just like shooting clays, right? Mm, mm. So. We have we have quails, yeah, little things like this, you know, and yeah. you know quails, and quite often you know, you would be walking through the the long standing grass in a paddock or whatever, and they'll just explode, <sighs> oh, and, yeah. and you just shit your pants. <laughs> Especially like you know we we have snakes, and you know, always in the back of your mind when you're walking in that country is snakes, right. and so you're not on edge, but you're aware. You know, and you sort of, you know, but movements like that in the grass to, to an Australian sort of, well, I don't know, but to me at least they, they can make me pucker. And then you just swear at them as they fly away. <laughs> so that to me, that to me is, a, the, our grouse season goes for a month and a half. It's just, it's just, um, I think it's still going right now and it's pretty soon. And um, do you, Can you do that locally? You can. Um, you can, it's mostly on, on public lands and they move to higher elevations throughout the season. Yeah, okay. Um, but, um, you know, we went out the other, we went out three weeks ago, flushed 12 birds, 15 birds. Um, and it, it's super fun. And my my, my, my mate has a, uh, a nice golden retriever. Perfect. Who, um, who does his job, retreats. does his job. <laughs> and um, he brings back those birds. And so it was super fun. Excellent. The most beautiful tasting bird. And... Um, there's a lot of them out there, so mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So you got the um, got the trip. You know the the day you're, you're talking about coming up in a few weeks. Yeah. Anything else on the cards? 
that's it. Set in um, the calendar for March next year to buy your tags. Yeah, you know, and it's it's kind of it's, I, I think depends on what's happened this year. I, every year I always find a couple new hunting places. Nice. And I'm always kind of seeing what's in the freezer and seeing what my availability is. Mm. And this year, okay, I got out for for three days in a five yeah. in a five day season mm. for elk. Um, I it it is what it is. That's why they call it hunting. But for deer, I'm going to give it a go and actually get out there for a few days. Um, and it'd be great to do that. And then that's it. I, I kind of stopped waterfowl shooting. Um, I've got a few friends that um, that really want to get me out to their blind. Maybe it's just to drink whiskey. Maybe it's to see a sunrise and see some birds flying. Still not a bad thing. Yeah. And so I might get out there this winter. I don't know if I'll bring my gun or not and get a, a waterfall stamp, a duck stamp as we call it, mm-hmm. which is your federal tag for the year. Um I saw Winged Migration. It was a movie that um, yes, I follows, that one. Like, follows ducks throughout the year. And yep. At one point, I was like, I don't. I probably don't need to shoot ducks anymore. <laughs> I like the taste, not like upland birds. Yep. And um, they've had such a long journey, and and then bang, bang, see ya. And uh, not that I, not you know, I'd eat it in a heartbeat. I just, I just haven't gone duck hunting in mm. probably ten years or so. The last time I went duck hunting was in northeastern Colorado. And I was with a coworker, and um, shot a few teal, shot a few mallards, some pintail, some whatever was flying. And we and, and I remember I had a duck in my Filson coat, and it was one of these side front pockets where the duck was, and I and I had it in there. And I was there was three mallards, forty meters away that I saw, and I had this duck in here. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna crawl. It was on a dike, so I had to kind of stay low, and I was gonna jump shoot them, basically stand up and stand jump. Up. Yep, they, yep. they flush, and then you see if you can get them. And my buddy is way down there, and he's like, yeah, you go, you do your thing. He saw what I was doing. I flushed the mallards, didn't get a shot off. And I was like, where's my duck? Where's the duck out of my, it must have fallen out when I was crawling. Hmm. So I'm crawling back, or I'm, I'm walking back, and I happened when I was when I was crawling to go jump these mallards, um, I happened to crawl right over a badger hole. <laughs> oh no <laughs> way! And I come back. It's like thirty feet, and I come back, and there's a shitload of feathers all around this badger hole with my duck. And um, I suspect that, and this was in a matter of forty-five seconds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suspect that uh, as I was crawling over it, the thing fell out. I, I don't think a badger would come come right up to my chest and grab mm. it, and came back and the fe- and it's all feathers. And <laughs> this badger took my duck, and I come back. It's a total non sequitur, but I come back Doesn't to matter. my buddy Rick, and Rick's like, "What do you got, big guy? What's going on here?" I'm like, "I just had a duck, but you won't believe this. <laughs> I shot a duck." We were having bad shots. Pickpocketed by a badger, a and, and a freaking badger ate it, and it and it came and got it from me. And he's like, "You are so full of shit. You did not shoot that duck. You're a terrible shot." I'm like, "No, no, 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 really. I shot this thing. I had it in my pocket. I'll show. I'll find you feathers." He's like, "I'll find so your shells." Yeah, yeah. I'm like, "No, no, 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 really." A badger took it. I'm like, "Come here. Check out this badger hole." He's like, "No, I don't want to see your badger hole. Like, You're so full of it." Anyway, that was the last time I went duck hunting. But yeah. um, you sure you don't hunt with me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, man! I tell you what. Yeah. So the badger got my the badger. The badger ate your duck. Yeah, it's badger got my duck. <laughs> Dead set. Oh, that's fantastic. So, 
we've already covered, like, we'll, we'll wrap it up in a bit, but, because yeah. um, it's getting late, and, um, and we have places to be in the morning, uh, don't we? So, we've covered off on, I think, pretty much, you know, it's, it's a, I think it's always a good topic to, to talk about, and, and you covered off on it straight up, what, what hunting is, and what it means to you, because I think, I think part and parcel of, of having uh, podcasts out on the, on the airwaves is that, um, you know, when, when people tune into them and, and start to listen, they start to um, hear what value um, you know, and, and what, what authenticity there is in, you know, the, the people that participate in these, these pastimes. Yeah. And whatever the pastime is, you know, the, the genuine, the passion and the connection with whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and you, mate, you definitely covered off on that. But moving on from that a little bit, I suppose you know, like the state of hunting as it is now for you here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what, what is it like, what's your perception of it, how it is, you know, like what's your, how, how do you see that the public reception of yourself as a hunter, mm -hmm. um, you know, as, a, as an outsider, um, you know, I suppose, you know, lo lots of us from Australia look at, at hunting in the US and, and to see a lot of very good things. Um, and we see things that are that are um, uh, structured in a way, like I said before, the tag system or you know a certain uh, element of the, the acceptance of the culture of hunting that, that we don't have um, for a large part. How do you see it and, and like current state, yeah. where it's going, what pressures are on it and, and what you hope it'll be in the future? I think, um, I, hear, I see, I see data and numbers and i see the hunting is on the decline i see that you know really new hunters aren't coming in then i also see that data that says hunters are coming in and i can't really speak to the numbers because that just yeah. that's the opposite of a home yeah where numbers hunting are is going up it's yeah home more and more that's, yeah that's and interesting I, and so i think um hmm. i don't I, I i can't speak to the numbers hmm. what i can say is that i think um as as with anything there's an evolution to the sport to the to the to the pastime and i think what i see right now and it gives me hope is that you have people that are entering in you even have like hunting camps that teach yep. people how to how to skin and it's 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 not back to the land it's people that have always perhaps have have had a connection to the land that now want to have a better connection to their food, maybe mm -hmm. because it's of big ag, maybe because it's it's they're looking for a more authentic experience, maybe they're looking for that tribe that connection, mm -hmm. something primal. Um, and so what I see is a new round of hunters, a new generation of hunters that are coming up with with um, that have never hunted, that didn't have mm. parents teach them. And so they're starting from scratch and they're choosing an ethic that's a little bit more, uh, maybe aligned with me in terms of fair chase. And it's not just um, maybe the older stereotype, uneducated um, hillbilly hunter mm -hmm. who is just um, shooting things and, and, and it's, it's just a different, a different type. And again, mm. at the end of the day, hunters are killing animals. Um, we're all in the same business and to a certain degree. Mm. And, I, and I mean that by hunting in terms of for meat. I'm not yep. talking about um, varmint hunters and others that, that are more into the um, 
into that into pest shooting. control sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but I, I so what it gives me hope is because I think a lot of people are are saying, hey, I, I want to have a connection. Um, I want to try to do things the right way. Mm. I want to do things in a humane way. I want to be lighter lighter on the land, um, and I want to have a connection to my food. And I think by by doing that, you you have more people connected to nature and I think when you love things you tend to protect them and tend to be advocates for them definitely and be ambassadors so as a public lands manager but also a, a, as a public lands lover in a sense like I think that's that's great to see um, I do think that you know meat eater and some of these other um, podcasts that are out there have helped um, provide a um, a voice yep. for a lot of hunters. Um, they've helped, I think, maybe um, whether by default or whether just by social pressure or nudging folks to maybe do the right thing. They've also perhaps changed some behaviors and 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 um, brought hunting to a more palatable, more socially acceptable light mm. than just the old the older image mm. of you know killing Bambi, whatever, um, or just the, the type of person that would hunt. For sure. Um, because uh, as you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's all stripes, right? It's all, it's all folks that are, that are, that are doing this. Mm. Um, so I love where it is. Um, Colorado is a busy state. There are a ton of people here. Um, and, um, they're all here for the same reason. So it's not like we're better than them or or whatever, but when you have that much, that many people out in the woods, mm. um, yeah, it can be sometimes a little bit much. And so sometimes you want to have this, it's that push pull where you want, you want to advocate, you want to, you want to have people connect to nature. You want to have people out there hunting. And on the other hand, you're like, yeah, just not where I'm going. Right. Because, <laughs> um, you know, there is a proliferation yep. and, um, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's some folks that are kind of adamant about like, just stop the, stop the hunting podcast. Stop, stop, mm. stop um, bringing attention to all this stuff because um, a lot of those great places are now pretty packed. Yep. And whether they're archers or, or they're riflemen or musk, you know, or muzzle loaders, whatever, um, a lot of people out there, mm. or at least it's more visible. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, there's just that. Mm. What I used to love and I still do about the hunters I've seen here is there's a level of camaraderie at the trailhead. That's nice. Um, yeah. The other day I've noticed that some folks have said like, you know, you'll go to a trailhead and nobody will even say hi. And they're all just kind of doing their own thing. Maybe being secretive. Maybe they have their new technology, their new GPS watches and they're, they're they've got whatever mm. they had drones up in the air. They knew where they were there. But what I what I've always appreciated is the is the, the the conversations I've had in the field with people that you meet, mm. whether you whether you're elk hunting and you're uh, you're bugling and you bring in a hunter in instead of a bull, or at camp or at the trailheads. Yep. How are things? Yep. And you can still have some great conversations with people um, about their hunts. Hear some stories. Help them out. Help haul things out. Absolutely. Um, and so I still feel like that 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 sense of community is there. Um, and um, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's doing well. I, th I think as we look at climate change, I think as we look at like other things, other things that could can can affect population and herd sizes. Yep. 
it's not something I take for granted mm. uh, that we'll have healthy elk herds and deer herds. Um, I mean, things happen, brucellosis, whatever, whatever you want to, you know, and other, other diseases that can happen. And so I think it's great that we have a lot of advocates out there. Um, I think there's some new, one last thing is I think there's some new voices. Um, I belong to an organization called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Mm-hmm. And it's truly about um, sportsmen that are, they belong to this organization for, for hunting. So that's mm. preserving access. That's stopping billionaires from buying public land, you know, for, yep. for doing land exchanges and blocking people out of public lands. Yep. Um, it's about fair chase and it's not about, it's not about the guns. Mm. NRA used to be a hunting organization back in the day and it's now more of a second amendment mm. gun rights organization. Um, and we didn't have that many voices besides that. And so now with, some other groups that are trying to say, Hey, you know, um, it's about hunting. It's about, it's about, um, having some ethics, having some fun and belonging to an organization that hopefully represents your views and interests Absolutely. within the larger sphere of hunting. Yep. So that's great too, because they are also, I think, giving, um, a better public image mm. of hunters, mm. uh, that were conservationists that we're not just all trigger happy for sure um, folks Very and important. that um, and it's not about the second amendment it's about it's about hunting and connecting with nature and having memories for for mm. your for your for your kids and and, mm-hmm. and with your friends so i like that aspect of it that we have more voices i think social media has helped with that yeah um, i think I think even with things like YouTube, right? If you don't know how to do elk with the gutless method, yeah. uh, there's there's ways you can learn. So I, right. I, I do think that, and that that maybe it builds a virtual community. I don't know, but at least there's ways to make hunting a little bit more accessible. Mm. So you don't have to find somebody like I did. Yep. To take you into the world mm. that will change your life forever. Mm. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah. I'll wrap it up real quick, but. Yeah. It's really foreign conversation to me to have conversations with hunters at the trailhead that you don't know. Because yeah. if I see a hunter in blocks that I hunt, it's just private land that I don't know, yeah. they're poaching. Yeah, yeah, I get <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Totally. And, and, and certain stuff's about to hit the fan. It's just, yeah, it's just you know, a, it's a really shows. foreign concept. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and yeah. some are really friendly and some are yeah. kind of like, you know, they got their camp. and That's awesome. It's know, really cool. Sometimes, you know, when there's a bunch of loaded rifles around there and tons of beers going around and people are being loud, you know, it's not like yeah. something you just want to kind of no. walk into. No. But that being said, um, I feel like it's a, it's a um, there's a lot of good people out there. I have to yeah. believe that. Yep. Um, there's always going to be bad apples. There's mm. always going to be folks that kind of make make bad decisions. Yep. Um, and uh, but it's I think it's alive and well. Mm. Um, and I mean I don't know. We'll see what happens. That's cool. You know, like I had a very similar sort of experience, I suppose, the other week when I was down the road in, in Page at, at um, shooting at Horseshoe Valley there. Oh, sorry, Horseshoe Bend. Shooting photos. Um, not, shooting not, photos not at sunset. Arrows, yeah. No, yeah, shooting photos. And um, there were a whole bunch of other guys that stayed back well after sunset to, to get the, the Milky Way coming up and that and all the... The mass flocks of tourists had disappeared. You know, there's yeah. about a dozen of us standing there, and of course, conversation struck up because we're all sharing the same passion. But that sort of thing with hunting at home only happens down the range. You know, not not at the trailhead. It's just really interesting. Let's wrap it up. It's getting late, mate. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Thanks, Luke. Because um, I know you're very busy. 
yeah. and we've had a big day and a big feed of Mexican before this. <laughs> <laughs> Can't think about meat in the freezer right now. I've got a lot of meat in the belly. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Protein coma. Um, but thanks so much for having us and uh, welcoming us into your home for the last, well, not continuous, but five nights. Um, we have had such a great time. And hopefully, and, I can, um, uh, hopefully I can keep listening to this podcast and get some inspiration so someday we come wow. we come all around the world to see you. We can... Um, well, there's no seasons down home, so whenever yeah, you rock up, we can go. We fun. can go. That's the thing. So, you know, it's been really cool to be able to um, to have you on the podcast and, um, and you know, just to to um, have this conversation to, um, to yeah, not, not full circle yet because we haven't been hunting, but no. you know, we'll close that gap but at some that, point yeah. and, and, uh, and, and share the, the conversations that we started from, uh, yeah, 12, 13 years ago. It's really cool. Perfect. Well, there you have it, team that next episode in the bank. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I know it really was an awesome time um, having a, a yarn with Rog and just discussing the, the finer points of what it is that you know makes him a hunter, but also those common bonds. We just keep hearing these same themes over and over again in hunters in all the podcasts that we listen to and all the interviews that we hear what drives us what makes us passionate about what it is that we do and what what it is that keeps getting us back out into into the bush into the wild into the paddock um, to reconnect and uh, and ground ourselves back within the passion of hunting and the wilderness and the outdoors I uh, I hope to bring you another podcast very soon uh, during my travels. Uh, I've now uh, moved on from Colorado and um, I'm on the second last night of nine in New York City, staying with a very good friend of mine again and also a very passionate hunter and outdoorsman. So tune in soon, episode six, sure to be another special episode from my perspective and I hope you have... um, have enjoyed listening today and uh, don't forget hit the like hit the subscribe and uh, please give us a share and by the way by any means by all means get in contact with any feedback any comments and questions you might have we'd love to hear from you thanks team catch you again soon